All right, turn with me to the book of Philippians, chapter 2. We will read verses 2 through 11, and before we read, let's pray together. Father, we are your servants who have come to hear from you through your word, your word which is more precious than gold and sweeter than honey, your testimonies which are wonderful. So please, grant us grace by your spirit. Grant us grace as your servants to have the understanding we need to know your testimonies, to see clearly who you are, who your Son is, so that we would be conformed into his image. May we stand in awe of you. May we be a people who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at your word. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's read chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Paul writes, So if there is any encouragement in Christ any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So tonight we are going to be focusing on verses 5 through 11. The last time I spoke, our focus was on 1 through 4. And when we looked at those verses, we had two main headings. We said there... In these verses, we see gospel, gospel benefits and gospel community. So Paul first describes the benefits that God has given to us in the gospel because we have received Christ by grace, by God's grace, and we have trusted in him. We have received these benefits. If you look at verse 1, he describes them there. It says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. So because we're in Christ, because we've received Christ by faith, what do we have? We have this encouragement from God. We have His love lavished upon us. We have been united together as His people. So those are the benefits we've received, not things we've earned, but things God has freely given to us. But then we said that those benefits then have implications for our lives, that they should transform the way we live. Though we don't receive them by how we live, 
having received them by grace, they now impact our lives. And what does that look like? We saw how it was both unity and humility. And that's in 2 through 4. Paul says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. There's that unity. He's wanting us to have this unity in our purpose, unity in our focus in life, unity in the way that we serve one another. But then this humility in 3 and 4 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. So what is this humility? It's having, having a focus not on self, but on others. That we do not seek to promote self, we do not seek to serve self, to affirm self, but instead we seek to, to minister to others, to serve others. We look to their interests above our own. And as I was thinking this again, I, I remember just critiquing the culture and, and saying how the culture longs in one sense, to have this unity, but it denies the very thing that we need in order to bring that about. And what is it? It's not having a focus on self. The culture says, what's the great problem? That we don't think about ourselves enough, that we think too lowly of ourselves. And so what we need to do is prop up our self-esteem, and then all the problems are going to be fixed. And so I'm critiquing that. And then I (laughs) was thinking, you know what, though? How often do I, do we then, having outwardly critique the culture, then inwardly proclaim the very things the culture proclaims in the way we live our lives. In doing the very things we say we're not supposed to do, we do by affirming self and seeking to defend ourselves when someone slanders us or not wanting to serve someone because we think they're not worthy. All of those ways are which, though we, though we should rightly critique the errors in our culture, we must always come back and take the log out of our own eyes. And, and with 3 and 4, we really see these commands that are so, so applicable, so all-pervasive to our lives in every area of our life, within the church, within our families, with our friends, at work. These commands should be worked out. And so he said we really need to sit with the Lord and ask Him to search us and show us how how we're failing to live in this way, and then beg Him for the grace we need to do that. So really, we could just rehash that whole sermon again, (laughs) because we need to constantly preach it to ourselves. But Paul, having described this this gospel benefits and this gospel community, then points us to this, what we'll call the gospel example of Christ. He points to Christ as the perfect example of the mind that we're to have. This perfect example of what it looks like not to focus on ourselves, but to focus on others. And you can see that then in verse 5, which is sort of a transition between what he's been saying and then this this description of who Christ is. In verse 5 he says, Have this mind among yourselves. And that, this mind, that phrase, seems to refer back to what he's just said about having this mind of humility as well as then, like I said, transitioning, pointing us to Christ as this perfect example. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And that phrase, which is yours in Christ Jesus, there's two ways that it's translated. If you have the ESV, there's actually a footnote in the main translation. It says, which is yours in Christ Jesus. But if you look at the footnote, 
Down at the bottom it says, which was also in Christ Jesus. So there's two ways that it's translated. Either it means that we've been given this new mind in Christ, or Paul's saying this is the mind that Christ had. So either it's saying Christ is the one who supplies this mind to us, that he gives us this mind, or he's saying this is the example Christ sets. Which one is it? I don't know which one it is, but, but what we do know is what? Both of those things are taught elsewhere in Scripture, and really both of them make sense within the context, though perhaps this idea of it being Christ as an example, because that's what he goes on to describe, but both of those things are taught. We're told what? That Christ is this perfect example whom we're to seek to imitate in response to what he's done for us. But we're also told that we've been given this new mind, that because we're in Christ, we're new creations, so we no longer walk in futility of our minds, but we've learned Christ. Our old self has been put off and our new self has been put on. So both of those things we should be keeping in mind because it's important for us to see Christ as our example, but then to realize we cannot imitate that example apart from His grace. If He doesn't give us this new mind, we cannot live in this way. It's not as if we can just look at this and think, yeah, that's a really good way, good way to live. It seems like a nice way of life to focus on others, to, to not think about yourselves. But we can't do that unless we're born again, unless we have this new life, unless we have the mind of Christ. So he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then that's when he then transitions into explaining what Christ has done in this perfect example he sets for us. And in looking at that, we will use three headings. We'll see uh, how he was equal, how he became empty, and how he is now exalted. And it's not fancy footwork to get those titles. You can see them right in the text. Verse 6, you can see how he refers to equality with God. So Jesus was equal with God. Verse 7, right at the beginning, you can see how it says he emptied himself. So he was equal, then he became empty. And last, exalted in verse 9, says, therefore God has highly exalted him. So we see equal, empty, and exalted. Those are our three headings. That's what we'll look at. And what we'll do is we'll go through each of them, and then we'll come back to verse 5 and think about how do each of those three things relate to this command of the mind we're to have. Because we need to not lose sight in, in looking at the wonderful, deep theology that Paul describes here, not miss the fact that it comes within the context of these extremely practical commands, showing what? That we must always keep the, the theology with the application. We can't separate the two. What happens if we separate them? If we have theology without application, what are we? James says we're no better than demons. But if we have application without the theology, then we just have these moralistic commands we can't keep. Because probably the majority of us, or all of us, knew we should live in this way, and yet, as I said, how often do we fail to live in this way? So what's our problem? Not necessarily that we don't know the command, but that we're not living the command. And when we're not living the command, what's, what does that show? It shows that we do not truly see the theology that founds that command. 
So what do we need? What we need is to see Jesus more and more. As Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 3.18, how are we transformed into the image of Christ? By beholding his glory. So it's in beholding Christ and seeing the wonder of who he is that we become more like him. So we may walk in thinking, I know these verses, but then we have to ask, okay, how often do we walk in selfish ambition? And to the extent we do shows the extent to which we don't fully understand these verses. So with that, let's look at each of these three things. Equal, empty, and exalted. First, equal in verse 6. What does Paul say? He says, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So you see there are two phrases he uses. He says the form of God and equality with God. To be in the form of God meant that Jesus possessed the very nature of God, which is how, if you have the NIV, it actually translates it that way, who being in very nature God. So because he had the nature of God, what does that mean? What he says next is that he was equal to God. Because Jesus had God's nature, he was in fact equal to God. And we see those same same truths described in in the Gospel of John. I want to turn to John chapter 1. See that at the beginning. In John 1, verses 1 and 2, we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And just so we know who the Word is, if you look at verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the Word is the Son, the Word is Jesus. And what do we see John say about the Word? He says first, he, he was in the beginning. So at the start of all things, Jesus was there. Showing what? He, he didn't begin, but He has always been. He has always existed. Also, He says what? Is that the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So there is a, a distinction, and yet an equality. The Word is distinct from God, and yet the Word is God. And what we see elsewhere is how the, the Son is distinct from the Father and the Son. The Son is distinct from the Father and the Spirit. So the Son is not the Father, and the Father is, is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Son. And yet what? The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are God. They have equality of nature and yet distinction in person. Which means what? That because Jesus is equal to God, because Jesus is God, he is in fact worthy of all worship and honor and praise and service and thanksgiving. Because as Paul writes in Colossians 1, Colossians 1, 15 to 17, if you remember, I missed Hebrews 1, but if you remember John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, are all wonderful descriptions of who Christ is. And Colossians 1, 15 to 17, 
Paul writes, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So what does Paul say about who Jesus is? He says that through him all things were made, in him all things are sustained, for him all things exist, and after him comes all things. So every single thing that we see was created through Jesus, is sustained by him, exists for him, and comes after him, both in regard to time and in regard to importance. That is who Jesus is, and because that is who he is, it means he deserves all glory, all honor, all thanksgiving, all service and praise. But why is Paul telling us that in Philippians? Not first and foremost to just teach us about Jesus' supremacy, but rather so that in seeing Jesus' supremacy, seeing Jesus' greatness, we would see the depth of his humility. Because notice in in verse 6 how he says, uh, going back to Philippians 2, verse 6, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So he's using this fact that Jesus was in the form of God as a, a, a contrast. He's saying this is who he was, and yet this is what he did. He was in the form of God, and yet what did he do? And he says what he did is that he did not grasp this, but he emptied himself. So that's the second point now. He was was equal with the Father, and yet he emptied himself. What does it mean that Jesus emptied himself? That he didn't grasp this equality with God? Well, at first glance, if we were to just take this phrase that he... He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. How would we understand it? We would understand it to mean Paul's saying Jesus did not grasp his divine nature, but he emptied himself of his deity, that he ceased to be God. And if I was to say that, hopefully everyone (laughs) shout out heresy, because why? Because we know from other parts of Scripture that when Jesus became man, he didn't cease to be God, but instead he became the God-man. He became the one who is fully and truly God and fully and truly man, that it was God who came to dwell among us, that it was the Word who became flesh, not some half, half God, half man, but one who is fully God and fully man. So, We could see that from other parts of Scripture, but even right here in the context, we see Paul explaining what he means by emptied himself. If you look at verse 7, Paul says, but emptied himself. How? He says, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So the way in which Jesus emptied himself was by taking and by being. He took something to himself and he became something, or he was born. He was, he was born. So Jesus did not empty himself in the sense of getting rid of his deity. Instead, Jesus emptied himself in the sense of taking to himself humanity. So it wasn't a subtraction of his deity. 
this emptying himself. Instead, it was adding to himself humanity. That he emptied himself by becoming man. He emptied himself by coming and dwelling among us. So he emptied himself. How? First, he says, by taking the form of a servant. When Jesus came, how did he come? He did not come, as he says in Mark 10, 15, for even the Son of Man came, not 10, 15, 10, 45, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So why did Jesus come? He did not come in order to be served by people. Instead, he came in order to serve. Then he says what? He took this, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and also by being born in the likeness of men. That Jesus, who was equal with God, was born of a virgin. And I remember when Pastor Rob talked about this at Christmas, just how astounding that was to think about. Here is the God of all things coming and being born of this woman and existing as a little baby. That is how he emptied himself, by by becoming this servant, by becoming man, by coming and dwelling among us. So going back now and thinking about this phrase, he didn't grasp it. If, if, em- if he didn't empty himself in the sense of getting rid of his deity, what does it mean to say that he did not grasp equality with God? Well, again, it cannot mean that he did not grasp, he did not hold on to his deity. So it must mean that he didn't, hold, that he didn't grasp it in the sense of demanding, demanding the rights, demanding the privileges, demanding to be treated as he deserved to be treated. And you can even, again, there's a footnote in the ESV on this word grasped, and it says uh, a thing to be held on to for advantage, a thing to be used for your own advantage. So though he, he could have demanded to be treated in a certain way as God, he, he emptied himself of that. He refused the rights he had. He refused to be regarded as he ought to have been regarded in emptying himself. So as we said, what does Jesus deserve? He deserves all service, all worship, all honor and praise. But what did he do? He emptied himself of all of that when he came and dwelt among us. Because he who deserved to be worshipped was despised. He who deserved all service came to serve. He who deserved all honor was mocked. He he who deserved all thanksgiving was, was cast aside. And... If you think about that, just how astounding that is and how much that contrasts with us. Because here is God who deserves all glory and he empties himself of that and and takes on this, this despising, this mocking, this slandering. And yet in his great humility, he bears through that. And how often do we, when someone says something to us in a, in a way we don't like it, does our pride immediately begin to rise? And yet here is Christ, the greatness of his humility. He's willing to face all of that, and he empties himself of all, all of the rights and privileges that he could have demanded. 
And yet, Paul says what? It goes a step further than that. Not only did he empty himself by becoming a servant, by coming and dwelling among us. Verse 8 now, he says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus is emptying himself, takes him from heaven to become man, But then even as man, he humbles himself to an even lower position as he willingly dies upon a cross. This death of great torment, this death of great shame. But for Christ, it was even more than just that physical suffering because upon the cross, he bore the very wrath of God in our place. And that's what we see in in Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. We see this this humble obedience to the Father and this willingness to drink, to, to suffer the wrath of God. Because how does he pray? You can find it in uh, different places in the Gospels. But in Matthew 26, he, in verse 39, he prays, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So you can see there his humility, because what does he do? He says, Father, this is what I desire. I don't want to have to suffer this. But if that is what you will, I will humble myself before you. I will humbly obey your will. And who's, what was the will of the Father? It was the will of the Father to crush His Son and to put Him to grief. So He, the Son, humbly obeys the Father by, being willingly, by willingly going to the cross. And what does he say would happen upon the cross? He refers to this cup, which is this biblical metaphor of of the wrath of God. God's wrath is pictured as this cup that is either poured out on the nations or which one must drink. And Jesus is saying, I will willingly drink the cup of your wrath if that is what you desire. So there is this, this humility of Christ. There is this emptying that he did. Not just, not just being born of a virgin, not just being born into this poor, ordinary family, not just being under the law and experiencing all of the trials and difficulties that we go through, but even being willing to die upon a cross to bear the wrath of God. So behold then our Christ, he who is equal with the Father, he who emptied himself to the cross. But then there's one more step that Paul says it's not just that Christ was equal, not just that he emptied himself, it's then that he was exalted above all. So going back to Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, Paul says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So notice how Paul says what God did and also why he did it. He says what he did was he exalted Jesus and he bestowed on him the name that is above every name, which is similar to what he says in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1, within this context in which Paul is, is praying for the, for the Ephesians to, to grasp the, the greatness of God's power towards them. In Ephesians 1, 19 to 23, 
Paul writes, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority, and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So if we were to ask the question, where is Jesus? We would say he is seated at the right hand of the Father, far above every single authority. Whatever authority, whatever power we can imagine... The United States, North Korea, Russia, some future united worldwide government. Jesus is not just above those powers. He is far above them. And if you can just picture that, here are all these great nations, all these powerful people, and yet Jesus is where? Far above them. You think about the Tower of Babel, and the people are what building this great tower, and it says that Jesus had to, or not Jesus, that God had to look way down to see what they were doing. They thought they were so significant with these, with this towering structure, and yet God had to to lean over metaphorically and squint to see what they were doing. Same with every every one of these powers that seems so significant that can bring us so much. Fear, Jesus is far above them. Also, what name does Jesus have? He has the name that is above every name. Any name, any, any, any great power that now exists or that could possibly be. And some take this name to actually be the name Jesus, but it seems better to understand it as that of Lord. This, this, this holy name in the Old Testament this great confession of the church, and this, this, this name that every single one will confess, as we saw in verse 11. So that is what God did. He exalted Jesus and he gave him this name. Now why did he do it? And that's what we see in verses 10 and 11. Paul says, So that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So why did the Father give Jesus this position and this title? So that on this coming day, every single person would bow before him and acknowledge his lordship. And the Bible is clear that there is coming this day when every single person will stand before him. And no matter how great, no matter how influential, how powerful, how rich, how famous, how beautiful a person was in this life, all of us will stand before the throne of Christ. And if you think about that, just think about these these people we think about, presidents, President Biden, President Trump. Think about these rich people, Elon Musk, Bill Gates. Think about famous people, Elvis or LeBron James, whoever we want to think about, where are they going to be side by side with the most insignificant people of this world? 
Imagine standing next to, next to President Biden and, I mean, who knows me, right? But here's President Biden, so well known by so many people. And where are we going to be side by side? Because who alone will be exalted in that day? It will be Christ. And every single person will bow before him and acknowledge his lordship. But there will be two types of bowing and two types of confessing. There will be those who bow and confess in joyful worship because we have, by God's grace, come to acknowledge Christ's lordship in this life. But there will be others who will bow and who will confess, but will do so because they have been crushed under the power of Christ. And so it will not all be the same. But what will be the same is that Christ will be glorified. And so, in considering those things, this this fact of, of standing before Christ and being brought under His submission, if you have not yet turned to Christ, may that fact drive you to Him this day. I mean, you might be thinking, you know, really? Really, is Jesus reigning over all things? Really, is Jesus coming back? And, you know, where's the promise of his coming? You may be thinking that. We definitely have friends and family that think that, that look at all of this and just think it's utter nonsense. You believe Jesus is reigning over all things? You really believe that Jesus is coming back? Where's the evidence? Where's the proof for that? And what's interesting is that Paul actually pointed to something when he was in Athens that to give proof for that fact. In, in Acts 17 and 30 and 31, as he's in Athens before speaking, before these philosophers, he says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. So he says what? God is commanding everyone to repent because he will judge the world. But he doesn't stop there. What does he say at the end? And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So he says, if you want to know that Christ really has been exalted above all, if you want to really know that Christ is coming back, where should you look? You should look at the resurrection. You should look at this historical event that can be examined, that can be reasoned about. Look there, consider the evidence, see that Christ really was raised from the dead. And in seeing that, you will know that these things are so. That Christ really is Lord of all, and Christ really is coming back to judge the world. And when you see that, may it then drive you to submission before him. Because what is the case? At least at this very moment, that day has not yet come. So, Today is still the day of salvation. And so this very moment, you can still turn to Christ. You can still trust in Him, acknowledge His Lordship, believe in Him as the only one who can save you. And so on that day, you will no longer be among those who will cower in fear, but instead among those who will rejoice at seeing their King finally reign over all things. So behold then our Christ, He who is equal with the Father, he who was emptied to the cross, and he who is now exalted above all. Last thing as we 
close is, again, just going back to verse 5. So here we saw these wonderful, deep theological truths about who Christ is, some of the most profound truths in all of the New Testament. And yet, in what context do they come? They come within the context of this command to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but to have this same mind. And what mind does he point to? What attitude? What what example does he point to? This example of Christ, who was equal, who was emptied, and who has now been exalted. So how do those things connect with this command? What should those things about who Jesus is, how should those things impact the way we live our daily lives? Because again, we need to keep these two things together. We can, we can think that, you know, there's these practical commands. Why, Paul, are you going so theological? You know, it's like in Romans. He, talk, he talks about welcoming one another. And then all of a sudden, he, he goes to these deep theological truths about who Jesus is. And again, it's showing what? That we need to keep the two together. If we're going to live in this way, we need to have this theology to found it and to drive our actions. So how might these things connect? Just briefly considering them, the the fact of Jesus being equal and empty ought to so humble us in our pride. Because again, as as I mentioned before, considering Jesus is God, he who has all rights, all privileges, who deserves all worship and praise, what does he do? He says, I'm not going to hold on to any of that, but I'm going to release it. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be despised, though I ought to be worshipped and praised. And so imagine Jesus sitting next to you as someone slanders you, slanders us, and then immediately our pride rises up. And we respond in a sinful way. And then we look over and we see Jesus. How are we going to feel? We're going to feel like total fools. Like, what in the world did I just do? In the same way, with him emptying himself, him being willing to go to the cross for those who were his enemies, imagine us when we are faced with this opportunity to serve someone, but we really don't feel like it. Either because we don't want to clean up our toys, or we don't want to pick up our, clean up our room, or we don't want to get that for our spouse. And they're not acting very nicely anyway, so they don't deserve this. And again, we look over and we see Jesus hanging upon the cross, And how are we going to feel? We're going to be so humbled in our pride because we're going to think, he did that, and here I'm not doing this. Why? Because we so firmly grasp to what we think are our rights, what we think are our privileges. But here he is, the only one that truly has these rights, truly has privileges, and he humbled himself. He emptied himself of those things. So how desperately we need to have our minds renewed in this that we train ourselves when this situation goes on, instead of immediately beginning to justify ourselves, immediately beginning to promote ourselves, our mind turns to Christ and what he has done, the fact that he was equal and he was emptied. The last thing is with him being exalted, is just his life shows that exaltation comes through humility. It's this biblical principle that those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. That we can fear, if I don't promote myself, I will not be promoted. But what did Jesus do? He entrusted himself to the Father. 
He said, I'm not going to do that. I know that the Father will do it according to his perfect will. And it's the same with us, is not, not exalting ourselves, but humbling ourselves before God, trusting that he will exalt us at the proper time, that he is the one who does that. And so we trust him as we obey him in serving one another. To close is just a reminder that Christ is our perfect example, but he is also our all-sufficient Savior. And the fact is, every single one of us falls short in this. Only Christ is the one who perfectly succeeded. And so we do these things not in order to earn his favor, but in response to all that he's done for us. So who then is Christ? He is the one who is equal with the Father, who was emptied to the cross, and who is now exalted above all. Let's pray together.